What's up, bingers? My guest today is a renowned author and documentarian who has taken her investigative and storytelling skill set to the podcast space. She hosts the fantastic podcast, Tenfold More Wicked. Please welcome Kate Winkler Dawson. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Well, before we turn the microphones on, Kate was just bragging to me about the the size of her windscreens on her her microphone. She's 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 really made me feel terrible about my tiny windscreen. <laughs> we have the we have the same microphone, and she's got two two now. Now, why do you have two windscreens? Because I am a spitter, and I go a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and so my sound designer. On Tidful More Wicked said, hey, you might want to get a couple more windscreens. So if I could have five stacked up, I that's what would happen. Just I'd blow through all of them to catch all the spit before it gets to the microphone. Mm-hmm. Less work for him, I think. Uh, well, it is is great to meet you, Kate. And I want to, man, you have a you have a crazy, it's not crazy, but it's just a, a very in-depth history that has led you up to doing the podcast. So I want I want to dig right into that. So you started off, did you start off in TV? I know you're an, you're an author now, but you've done some work in television. So t- tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, I started out in television. I grew up in Austin, Texas, where I am now, uh, but went several places in between coming back here. And I started in television news, and that's what I thought I was always going to do. And then uh, I worked in New York, I worked in San Francisco, I worked in LA and London and Boston, and I came back to Austin. And thought I would be a professor of journalism, which is what I am. But I wanted to dig into documentaries, which documentaries are amazing. And I and I did a few documentaries. The issue was is that when I had children, I realized I couldn't fly all over the country Mm -hmm. doing films, which is 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 really what it takes to do documentaries. You have to be ready to go. And I just wasn't. I had two little I had twins, two girls, and I and I wasn't able to leave at the drop of a hat. So a friend of mine said, why don't you start writing books? And so I pitched, uh, after I wrapped my head around that concept, going from teaching people how to write seven word sentences to quite a bit longer. <laughs> it's a different animal. I mean, it's, and it's different than doing documentaries. I was pitching, I got an agent and I was pitching the agent Civil War books, because I'm into the Civil War and, and just at different genres. And a friend of mine said, nothing was working. And a friend of mine said, you know, you take a break from writing book proposals by watching 48-hour mysteries. I call them death shows. 48-hour mysteries and <laughs> Dateline NBC and all of these shows. Why don't you write about true crime? And I am really into history, and I studied history in college. And so I just thought, well, this will be an interesting mashup. And that's sort of where my career in, in authoring started. And after I wrote a couple of books... I thought, I wonder if, uh, based on my background in television, and I also worked for for ABC Radio for quite a while, I understood shooting, I understood gathering audio, editing, I taught editing at UT, Mm -hmm. I I still teach editing. So I had all these tools that would have been perfect 
for podcasting. And I just thought, boy, I have a list of, of books that my editor has categorically said no to. And <laughs> I said, well, I've done all the research, man. So I'm just going to turn them into podcasts. And so I just started locating family members because that's really important to me. And mm-hmm. that's where Tenfold More Wicked came from. So it's been a real weird journey. I have people tell me, you know, why don't you just specialize in one thing? And that's just, to me, it's pretty boring. And there are some stories that would be better podcasts or better audiobooks or better, you know, regular long form books or documentaries. And so I, I just like to, I, I'm all about diversifying, Bob. That's, <laughs> that's my that's goal is to diversify, <laughs> just like stocks. Well, pod, podcasting is the perfect place to do it. So many people we talked to had s- similar stories where like, I was trying to get this made into a documentary. I was trying to get this made into a movie or, or a book. And it's like, well, I can, I can buy a microphone on Amazon and make a podcast out yeah. of it if I want to. Yeah. And I think, I think w- the thing that I've learned about podcasting that's really cool that I've never been able to do with documentaries or journalism or any books is you can be intimate in a way in podcasting that you just can't, I can't crack jokes in a book about John Reginald Christie, a serial killer or about a forensic right, right. scientist. I mean, I really can't, a little bit of my humor can come through, but in podcasting, it's cool because like I just took my kid to a graveyard yesterday from the 1800s and just mm-hmm. said, find this grave. We need to find this grave and I can record her. And so you get to you get to learn through my show a little bit about me, not very much, but a little bit. And you get to know my personality because you can hear me asking people questions and I get to joke with people, even though we talk about serious subjects. So that connection with an audience is something I've never been able to do before. And, and that's only because of podcasting. Yeah, and you're able to take people along for the ride. That's something, you know, I had I had no background in any of this when I started doing Truth and Justice, my other show, and and I've learned more. I'm working prepping for a new case right now, and I've I've learned more. I I I took a lot of lessons from David Ridgen, who does um someone knows something and up in Canada of just have have a recorder going all the time yeah. and just capture capture all of those those moments that you always miss. But the you know the, the way you stitch your podcast together is really cool because you know I always I always love it when people come from television into making podcasts. Those always tend to be the podcasts that I really enjoy the most because there's a there's a certain way things are you know they say in you know when we're making documentaries you got you want to make the room move and you don't want the camera in one place all the, it, it it you know for any length, long period of time and it's bouncing around and people that come from TV and then go to podcasts like take that concept seems like with audio in 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 the the microphones moving from person to person to person and there's there's a there's a great production value there I think that comes from people like yourself who have worked in TV. Yeah, I think that's true. I think you're trying to keep an energy level up and um and I think that there are plenty of podcasts that well my other one Wicked Words being one of them where I interview people just like this and you're just you're going back and forth but mm-hmm. to tell a good story sometimes you do need to sit there and listen to someone unspool a story right. and hopefully you're interviewing someone who's a good storyteller but I think in a in a show like Tenfold More Wicked where it is a documentary experience we really try to make it immersive we have I have an unbelievable sound designer and I have an unbelievable composer so we use period period music and sort of twist it around to change it. And we have original music and then we have a lot of sound effects. So I'm trying to evoke the sort of BBC old school radio where you feel like you're there and it's less reading a news magazine article with some interviews peppered in there mm-hmm. and more of a, a 
an immersion into Gilded Age New York or, you know, the season that we have that's coming up now, which is 1920s L.A. What is that like? And, you know, what do the cars sound like and dirt roads? And so to me, it it really is sort of a, a synergy of fusing really interesting history with the true crime. Yeah, it's great. Now, and you had said that you've done a couple documentaries, but ha- but I believe if my notes are correct, you have produced over twenty documentaries. Is that accurate? It's it's a lot, and and part of those are are news pieces too. You know, I worked uh-huh. for various networks, but I certainly have experience as you were talking about sort of pinging back and forth between interviews and track and and the natural sound, cows mooing is what I tell my mm-hmm. students. You know, the things yeah. that really make you feel like you're there. Again, rather than reading an article and having some audio interviews in between, it's just a different experience. So, uh, again, it's like what you said, people in television tend to come to podcasting, and I think they miss that experience. They want to make sure that the audio aspect of it's there and that you're feeling like you are walking through a field in the snow like I was for you know the first season of Tenfold More Wicked that you're on a farm and what are those sounds like? And, and that is a, a visceral effect on a listener that maybe they don't realize. But um, I actually have people tell me all the time that they use <laughs> Tenfold More Wicked as like an ASMR <laughs> type of <laughs> experience where they're sort of not going to sleep necessarily, although my mom goes to sleep to my podcast. But so it's a <laughs> it's a feeling of, you know, being able to have all the soundscape that re- that really brings you there. And that's important to me. It does. You really feel like with your show that you're you're along for the ride. And I've had that air quotes compliment from me before, like, oh, I love Bob's podcast. I fall asleep to it every night. I'm like, that's really not the point. For you to- <laughs> as long <laughs> as they're listening, though. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess thanks for the download, but yeah. you're not supposed thanks. to drift, a- thanks for drift being asleep. There. I think it's your, it must be your voice. I think it has to be your voice. Boy, sure. It's better than having the alternate, which is... Right. Your voice is so grating and your tone and your uh, your cadence is so terrible that I had to turn you off. So I'll take the sleeping part. That's fine with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely, at least people people enjoy the the, the sound of your voice. Um, now, now you're, so you have this, this past where you're in, you're in TV, you do documentaries, you're into true crime, as you, you refer to as your death, uh, your death shows, which mm-hmm. always reminds me of my. My grandmother watching her stories on TV. Oh, yeah. You have your you have your death shows. I do. <laughs> um, but then you have this connection to true crime because your your father was a criminal law professor, right? He was. He was a law professor at the University of Texas for thirty seven years until he died in two thousand five. And you know, I went. I grew up going to his classes, and he really specialized mm-hmm. in juvenile crime. So he wrote a lot for the Texas legislature, and. He started the first innocence project at the University of Texas. So it's called the Mm -hmm. Actual Innocence Clinic. And unfortunately, the exoneration, the big exoneration that the clinic had happened after he died. But he knew that things were in motion for it. It was very important Mm -hmm. to him. We talked about um, forensics, which is why I wrote the second book, American Sherlock, was was really as a homage to my father. I really wanted sort of an exploration of forensics at that time period. and. Uh, my mom was a clinical uh, psychologist who has a huge love of true crime, even more than I do, I think. She really appreciates mm-hmm. true crime. And so I was, uh, probably about a year ago, I was, uh, I spent the night at my parents' house. My kids like to stay at my parents' house. We live really close to them. And so I spent the night with one of my kids and I got up early in the morning 
And I looked at all the bookshelves in my mom's living room, which is the living room I grew up in. And uh-huh. I don't think any books have changed. They're all in the same order from when I was a kid. And it's like In Cold Blood and all of these, you know, really, I mean, some true crime and, and a lot of um, uh, Stephen King and really dark, dark stuff. And I just thought, huh, okay. <laughs> a little more information about where I came from and why I have this interest. But my mom and I talk about it all the time. My mom listens to every single podcast. She listens to your podcast. She listens to every single true crime podcast, and she goes to sleep to it. Probably not yours, but probably. probably she probably is. She probably falls asleep to I'm her Bob Ross to fall asleep That's okay, because right? she's listening, and she subscribes. So <laughs> That's right. Well, tell your mother I appreciate it. There you are. That is a moniker for you, the Bob Ross of true crime. That sounds great. Right. Yeah, I've, I've heard it before, which is funny because I have taken to uh, – like a year ago, I was having trouble falling asleep, and I started turning on Bob Ross on Hulu and literally falling asleep to Bob Ross on the TV in my bedroom. Just nice, ASMR, nice. soothing. Yeah. And then and then I wonder if he would be as insulted uh, by me falling asleep to his great work. That <laughs> but, you know, it's it's a compliment in my book. It is. It's a compliment. My kids fall asleep to um, Matthew McConaughey reading a story on Calm, so... <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> we all have our role in life, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> you just you can fall asleep to Matthew McConaughey doing a link. Yeah, all right, all right, all right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um so, so real quick before we move on to the podcast, I was touch on some of the other work you've done. So you've you have uh two books you've written, Death in the Air. They they all they both have long subtitles. So Death in the Air, The True Story of a Serial Killer, The Great London Smog, and The Strangling of a City. Uh, right. What's a quick Reader's Digest of of that book? The Reader's Digest version um, actually goes into the second book, which is nice. So it is about the London smog of 1952, which was the world's deadliest air pollution disaster. It killed about 12,000 people. And there's a, a big government cover-up, Churchill's the prime minister at the time. And there are people stuck in this fog, which was a five-day-long fog. And there are people, real people, who are stuck in this fog. There's a little girl whose father dies um, because of the uh, the smog, he had bronchitis. There's a cop, there's a, a doctor, there's a politician, and there's a serial killer who is a very famous serial killer named John Reginald Christie. And so these stories intersect. Christie and, you know, this potential wrongful conviction intersects in Parliament at the time of um, the smog and why London cared much more about a serial killer than it did about a deadly air pollution disaster that ended up killing a lot of people the next year. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like how interested we are in clear and present danger versus something that is going to really require a systemic change like mm-hmm. air pollution was a systemic change. So uh, the, that sort of drew me into the second book, at which I had mentioned before, my father was really into fo- forensics because he was into the Innocence Project. And we talked a lot about junk science. And I knew the second book needed to be, for me, a forensic scientist. And I wanted to take uh, the the fog was one very large event that I was able to to show through the lenses of a bunch of different people and get different points of view. American Sherlock is a lot more of um, one point of view about a, a lot of different events. So it's this man, Oscar Heinrich, who was an incredible forensic scientist who up until I wrote this book didn't even have a Wikipedia page. Thank you to whoever created that page. I have no idea who it was. <laughs> but uh, Oscar was an incredible forensic scientist, and he he was involved in some of the most fantastic cases in the 1920s. And he worked for you know more than 50 years and and closed more than 2,000 cases. 
So he innovated a lot of really great forensics, like ballistics. Um, and then he innovated some pretty bad forensics, like bloodstain pattern analysis, to a certain extent, fingerprinting, um, you know, to a, a, a certain extent, really kind of inaccurate different parts of ballistics also. So it's an interesting case about a, a very fallible man. He had OCD, clearly, based on the archive that I saw and, and everything that he kept. It was more than 100 boxes. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a really roller coaster ride in his life and um, why he was the way he was and how he was able to accomplish everything he accomplished. And he just had a very tragic ending to his life. So um, that was the second book. And I'm getting ready to publish in October of, of this year. I can't believe it's this year already, but October of this year, my third book, which is based on um, Edward Ruloff, who was season one of Tenfold More Wicked. That mm-hmm. season was supposed to be a book, and I pitched it to my editor, and she said this was another no. And uh, I said, okay, well, I'm going to turn it into a podcast. And I found his family. He was a, a genius killer from the 19th century who sort of became the avatar for the criminal mind. And a, a large group of men came in while he was shackled to the floor of a prison and decided that they were going to try to figure out what made this guy kill his wife and his child and his sister-in-law and her child and then create a criminal ring in New York City and Gilded Age. And so it was like Mine Hunters meets Hannibal Lecter meets 19th century. So oh, wow. that's what that book is about. And it's called All That Is Wicked. And that'll be out in uh, this October. Awesome. And so you you launched Tenfold More Wicked is the name of the podcast. You launched mm-hmm. that in November of 2020, right in the right in the middle of the pandemic. Seems to be a lot yep. of podcasts launched during that time. Did the did the pandemic have anything to do with why you launched your podcast then, or was that coincidence? No, it was a you know I taped the first two seasons really far in advance because mm-hmm. I I had just this idea, and it was in 2018. So this was before the pandemic. I really started mm-hmm. taping and. So about a year beforehand. And so this was all in motion for quite a long time before the pandemic even hit. But it was a um, advantageous for me. I This is my closet right now that I'm sitting in. And <laughs> I was able to, I think a lot of people have become very innovative because of the pandemic. I will say I, it caused a big panic for me last summer of uh, 2020 because um, you know, I I meet people in person. I go to the scenes. I w- flew to Edinburgh for the Burke and Hare season two story. I go everywhere. I was supposed to go to New Orleans this week, and then we had a big upsurge, and now I'm not. So I've had to be right. pretty creative. I've shipped microphones all over the place. I've left the microphones in Austin on the stoops of attorneys <laughs> and told them how to turn a microphone on. Really? <laughs> and then I've gotten on the phone with them and sat outside their house. Yeah, I mean, you have to do what you have to do. And it's caused um, it's caused a pretty big disruption in a lot of ways, but it's also it's also been really wonderful in some ways. So it's for me, as far as a, a podcasting goes, you you really have to think outside the box when you interview people in person. God, that's amazing that you've that the lengths you've gone to because I mean I had to change some things with Truth and Justice too, but like my big change was I I bought a shotgun mic. So I didn't have to touch people and put a lavalier mic on them so I can yeah. stay 10 feet away and record them. I never yeah. thought of just leaving mics sitting on their, on their porch and talking to well, them you really It's a big risk, though, because they can mess. I've had people mess it up. I mean, just like, I don't know right. how you can. When I push the record button, all you have to do is take it by the tripod and set it up. But, um, but you know, it's, it's worked out in that way. But it does, like this week, me going, oh, my gosh, I can't. 
make this trip. It went from me flying there to me driving there, which is about an eight-hour drive from Austin, mm-hmm. to me just going, okay, we're going to do this another time. This is obviously not going to work. So yeah. uh, you just have to be, I think, flexible and and not rigid is the key for me. Yeah, I have this, I'm in the, kind of in the same boat. So I have a flight booked for this Saturday to California to interview people for a case. And I'm just waiting on, do I, first of all, is the flight going to be canceled? Oh, uh, yeah. Right now for, depending when you're listening to this, right now they're canceling flights all over the place. All over There's, the place. Thousands a day. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if I'd be able to go if I want to. I don't know if I should go depending on how things go over the next week. So yeah, yeah it's a, it's a bummer, but uh, uh, it's, it's a tough time to get anything done. So when, when you started the podcast, now you, you've teamed up with the Exactly Right Network. Right. My favorite murder folks. Yes. So when you decided to make the podcast, how did you get connected with uh, with Exactly Right and the rest of your team? Well, the team started with a producer, a local producer here named Jason Whaling, who I've worked on with documentaries before. And I just knew he knew story. I mean, this is somebody who I could say, I've got this idea and it's a poisoner in New Orleans that takes place in 1910. And he'll say, okay, this is what, this is what the things you need to sustain it for six episodes, because I often hear podcasts that are supposed to be sort of immersive and, oh my goodness, it just feels like there's a lot of fat there, you know, and Mm -hmm. and I need to make sure that this is not a one and done, a killing, and then what are we going to talk about for the other five episodes? We need to really be able to have a good narrative arc. There has to be a good jail escape and another murder and, you know, my second season, mm-hmm. Burke and Hare, they killed 18 people to so they could sell right. their bodies to an anatomy professor. That's easy. I mean, that's like two killings, three killings an episode. Yeah, yeah. But, but you get more complicated in the season coming up, which is one murder, but a whole lot of stuff happening um, in, in between and after and a lot of consequences that were sort of unexpected. So um, I... I looped in Jason and said, I need your help with story. I can do scripts. I can, I always write my own stuff. And then mm-hmm. we, we brought in a writer who I've worked with before, Laura Sobel, who worked for years for biography channel and has been at every network possible. And she cleans up my writing essentially and asks a lot of annoying, but very pertinent questions <laughs> about the story structure. Um, mm-hmm. And then I have a podcast agent who is great mm-hmm. at UTA and There are not that many podcast agents, but he's one of the best. And I went to him and just said, I I want to do this podcast. And he gave me a a host of options. And we talked about it. And as you and I both know, our audience probably is dominated by women. Women Mm -hmm. love true crime. It is an exorbitant amount of numbers of, of women who listen to true crime. And he said, I think you would do well at Exactly Right, which is the home of My Favorite Murder. It was started by... Georgia uh, Hartstark and Karen Kilgariff, and it, mm-hmm. it's a really great network to be at. It's it's run by women. There are some men peppered about, but really the women are very, very um, instrumental in making this a successful network, and it's a really great environment for me. It's not a huge network. It's not a Wondery but, or an iHeartRadio, but it's a network where I feel like we can really grow an audience and we have some really great, I consider heavy hitters, Paul Holes and Billy Jensen on Murder Squad. And so it's just mm-hmm. a great, and of course, my favorite murder, which is the giant of true crime podcasts. So it's been just a wonderful experience for me. Yeah, they're a great network. And, and if you uh, get a chance to put in a good word with Georgia and Karen, I would love to have them come on True Crime okay. Day sometime. They're hard folks to get a hold of. 
It's difficult. Yeah, I you know they're so busy. I actually requested an interview with Karen for tenfold, just an opinion on um, people who are obsessed with true crime based on one of my cases, and it took me two or three months to get in with her. So <laughs> it's really <laughs> and you're on the network. It's really I'm excited to get in, and I'm I, even if I had COVID, I would do the interview still <laughs> because I just don't <laughs> right. know if I'll get in with her again. And it's just because they have so many great opportunities, and they right. and they really they really are. Um, outstanding as far as trying to to give feedback to people. So, yeah, they're great. I love the show, and a lot of our guests love the show. I was reach, um, they were like the inspiration for who was it we had on just a while back, Alvin Williams with affirmative murder. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're they're kind of one of the backbones of the of the uh, the true crime podcast genre. So now your show is the tenfold more wicked and. You're, you're you're essentially you're diving into historical true crime stories, right? Uh, and it's kind of a combination of narrative nonfiction and investigative journalism, kind of yep. blended in in together. And before we get into our case that we're going to talk about, you you mentioned it briefly, but you also have like a spinoff podcast called Wicked Words, right? You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Wicked Words is just an idea I had because I have so many buddies in journalism who report on true crime and they might not be called true crime journalists or historians. Mm-hmm. They'll do the occasional true crime story if it strikes their fancy. And so when I was on a book tour for American Sherlock, which came out in 2020. Yeah, I think it came out in February. I can't even remember. <laughs> I blocked it out. February of 2020. And uh, I'm with Penguin Random House and they sent me all over the country on a tour. And I get bored pretty easily, as many people do in my generation. And I said, well, why don't I just call people where I am? So I was in Phoenix and I called this guy Dawson Fear now because I, I'm a fan of his. He writes for mm-hmm. Phoenix Magazine and he's written a lot about history, history and true crime in Phoenix. And I just said, this was probably ill-advised, but I just said, meet me at my hotel. And he was like, okay. <laughs> so he went to my <laughs> hotel, and, which is probably not a great idea for a man, but but or for a woman, I guess. But I just said, let's do this. And so we went to my hotel and set up microphones and just did an interview. I did the same thing in New York um, with some other journalists. And there was uh, Vicki Irwin in, Sa- in St. Louis. And so everywhere I went, I left behind a trail of journalists who I spoke with. And I pitched it to Exactly Right, and I just said, I think this is a great idea. Uh, I never thought I would do a talk show. I always thought Tenfold would be my my major concentration. But mm-hmm. it's an interview show where I know some about something about the case. You know, I'll read up on it, but I want to be surprised. And I have, of course, audible gasps and, and over-information. <laughs> Georgia and Karen are very much the same way. They don't really prep each other on their cases. So they're always surprised. The best interview... I think I've ever had about my book was when I went to WNYC and there was a a there was a great show and the host was removed from the show the night before I was supposed to be interviewed and they put in a temporary mm-hmm. host who had never read the book and my yeah. publicist called me and she said hey heads up you know uh, this host has never read your book and I went in and she was pretty a uh, deer in headlights and I just said just ask me about air pollution and wrongful conviction and. She because and I took a note from her because she literally knew nothing about my book. Everything Mm -hmm. I said to her was shocking and a surprise. And so everything it was like telling my grandmother something like, oh, can you believe this? And she's like, no, are you serious? It was great. And so I try to take that same tact. I just I know a little bit about the case. I know enough to ask questions that can lead us in the right direction 
But the twists mm. and turns of some of these cases are crazy. And I just and I would rather be surprised along with everyone else and ask the dumb questions that normally if I were a really, really prepared journalist, I would know the answers where where the body was hidden and what the motivation was and who is this person. But uh, the very last two episodes, which aired in December, it's a two-parter. I've never done a two-parter before. It was with uh, Elon Green, who's a fantastic journalist. And he wrote a book about called The Last Call Murder. And it was a, about a, a serial killer who preyed on gay men in New York City in the late 80s, early 90s. And I had no clue when we were talking about this case for we talked for about two and a half hours about the case, which is why it turned into a two parter. I had no mm. clue who the killer was. No idea. We just kept unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. And finally, I was pretty shocked about who it was. And I, I think that's to me what makes I'm, I try to make it feel fresh in that way where mm. I I'm, I just sort of don't know a lot of the information. And it's been a blast. I love doing that show. So Tenfold More Wicked is 18 episodes. It's three seasons back to back, six episodes mm-hmm. each. And we have a trailer in between. And then when that show ends, which is usually late spring, Tenfold More, or, uh, Wicked Words picks up. And that takes okay. us through the end of the year. So it is nonstop Kate Winkler Dawson. Kate Winkler Dawson all the time at exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one show into the next, to the next, to the next. So you it's, can find it, a Kate Winkler Dawson episode every week on exactly right. right. If you want to go to sleep, there's a show for you right. that drops on Mondays. <laughs> the Last Call Murder was is not the show for you to go to sleep to. It's pretty terrifying to me. But anyway, so it's it's uh it's it's been a great experience and I love the the shows are so different because one is like doing a documentary, it's a four and a half hour documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh Tenfold More Wicked. And like I said, I go to the scene, I go to New York, I visit I have to have the family. If I don't have the family of either the killer or the victim victims. It's, it's not going to work. And mm-hmm. it seems a little crazy to do a story from the 1800s and find the family. But I find the families and they frequently know everything about the story. Or like oh, in the case amazing. of Burke and yeah, like the case of Burke and Hare, they knew some about the story. But uh, I found uh, William Burke, who was one of the killers. I found his his relatives and mm-hmm. uh, who are in America. And they knew some about some about the story, but they had a lot of questions. And I was able to give them some answers, which I think kind of irritated them because the answers were that their great-great-grandmother knew a whole lot more than she told the rest of the family. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting how me being able to provide information through Tenfold More Wicked to family members, that I usually wrap around at the end and say, did you know this? It reframes their family history sometimes. They're almost right. always surprised. There's new information, which doesn't seem a big deal, like a big deal if it's a story from the 1800s. But it is. It's part of the stories we tell our children about our families. And when you have a tragedy like a murder that happened, even if it's 200 years ago, it still creates this one square in a tapestry of your family history. And mm-hmm. it's important. And sometimes it illustrates why we are the way we are in our families now. So it's interesting. It's, it's a great, both shows are a great experience for me. Well, that's awesome. Well, well let's, let's move into the, the case we're going to talk about today. And it's one, much like you, I don't know a whole lot about other than the notes that, uh, that I have on it. Um, it's Aline, am I pronouncing that right? Aline Lampson? A- Aline Lampson, yes. Okay. And this is from uh, my this is from my book, one of my cases from my book that I love, one of my favorite cases. From American Sherlock, right? Right. 
Right. Yeah. So I'll I'll just sort of set the scene. Um, it is 1933, and uh, uh, Palo Alto, which is where Stanford University is. And mm-hmm. I think that this is an interesting case because it was one that really sort of befuddled my forensic scientist, Oscar Heinrich, who was nicknamed the America Sherlock Holmes, which is why the book's called American Sherlock. So mm-hmm. Aileen Lamson is married to David Lamson. They have a little girl that they nicknamed BB. And it's 1933 in Northern California, Palo Alto, which is now Silicon Valley, but was back mm-hmm. then really dominated by um, Sanford University. And so this is a couple in their late 20s, early 30s. They are on what they call Faculty Row, which was a whole row of cottages that they rented out to faculty. David Lampson was an executive at the Stanford University Press, which is where they they printed books. He was an intellectual. He and his wife, Aileen, both went to Stanford. They met. She actually had an advanced degree, which was not that usual for women in the 1930s. So we are in the Depression, but Stanford is not really feeling the Depression. Palo Alto is doing fairly well. And Aileen and David are hobnobbing with the elite of society, Hoover's granddaughter. And, you know, there's there's a, a lot of people, they float around in a circle that is pretty prominent. They were not wealthy, but they were wealthy enough to live, you know, in this exclusive area and just blocks from where Hoover had retired. And this was a a pretty nice group of friends that they had. Mm. So David Lamson, what what is so interesting about this case is that, um, you know, David Lamson is very charming. He has a little bit of a flat affect, but he's very charming. And he seems to love his wife and his daughter very much. So I had her journal, her diaries, and there's nothing weird or amiss anywhere in there. He's romantic and he's sweet and all that. So you see where this is heading, what kind of case mm-hmm. this is. So it's Memorial Day weekend, 1933. David and Aileen are flitting from party to party, and she gets a stomach ache on Sunday, and she wants to come home and take a nap. So she go, wants to go to bed early. She, she goes, and, and he says he had sent his daughter away to his mother's house, I believe, for the weekend so that they could have some privacy. And he says, I will sleep in BB's room and you can sleep in your bedroom, in the bedroom, in the master bedroom. I'll give you some space. He was going to do yard work the next morning on Memorial Day. And he said, I'll I'll let you sleep in. So this is what happens. She wakes up in the middle of the night. She has a stomach ache. He coaxes her back to sleep and she's still sleeping. And he gets up in the morning and gets dressed and he's wearing a t-shirt. It's kind of a balmy morning. And he goes outside and he clips a lot of the um, the uh, blackberry bushes. And he starts this sort of bonfire in the backyard. He talks to neighbors about simonizing cars. And it's just a lot of chit-chat. He goes inside and Aileen is just waking up and putting her hair in braids. And she says, I need a bath. And he says, I think that's a great idea. He draws her a bath in their small bathroom. And um, helps her get in, and she rests, essentially, and she's still not feeling 100%. Aileen was a petite woman. She was, I think, five foot seven and probably 120 pounds. So, you know, she laid down in the bath. He went back to doing his yard work. BB is still gone. There is a real estate agent who pops her head over the fence, along with her client, who says, David, can we look at the cottage now? 
BB had some pretty bad like sinus infections. She was getting a sort of nonstop string of sinus infections, the little girl. Mm-hmm. And they were going to rent the cottage out for the summer and go somewhere in the mountains where I guess that this would have been uh, alleviating sinus infections for BB. And so this woman, this real estate agent, pops up really unexpectedly and says, "Can I have a client here. She's really interested. Can we see the cottage right now? And he says, my wife is in the bathtub. Give me a second. But this isn't a problem. Don't worry about it. He had no shirt on. He puts on a shirt. He walks in and there's immediate screaming. And he runs to the front door, flings it open and says, call 911. They walk into the bathroom and Aileen is slumped over the bathtub, the edge of the bathtub. She is dead. The bathtub water is pink. And every wall and ceiling, every part of the ceiling, every wall, the part of the floor is covered in blood. She lost half of the blood in her body, which is a tremendous amount, even for a woman who's petite. Mm -hmm. He is freaking out, which is understandable, and screaming and crying. And now every neighbor you can think of is traipsing through the house, contaminating the whole scene. And the police come, and within 15 minutes, he is placed in handcuffs and is under arrest. So... Um, he suspects that it's a slip and fall and she hit her head. The police mm-hmm. suspect otherwise. The prosecutor says after looking at some of the evidence, after talking to some of the neighbors, nobody heard anything amiss, but it just seemed like a slip and fall was not possible. They start looking through this burning, smoldering bonfire in the backyard and they find an iron pipe. And they say mm-hmm. he was disposing of evidence. This all happened very, very quickly, which is sort of, to me, unusual if you're looking at it through a scope of 2021 because he was affluent, he was white, they had mm-hmm. nothing, nothing suspicious happened, no one heard screams except for his. So why put him under arrest that quickly? They thought he was suspicious. And again, they did not think that this looked like a slip and fall. She had some gashes in the back of her head. Um, he was covered in blood, but it was blood that was mixed with water. It did not look like arterial blood that had spurted onto him. Mm-hmm. But everything was covered. He had a jacket that was ha- that was hanging on the back of the door, like a, a you know nightdress kind of jacket. It was covered with blood. Everything. So um, you know, one scene that I paint in the book that's really disturbing that we hear about a lot is you know I report an awful lot on women who are killed by men, particularly their husbands. This happened in my first book with John Reginald Christie, the serial killer. This happens now um, in American Sherlock. And there is always a scene because it takes a long time, as you know, to process a crime scene. There's a scene where she is naked, laying aside of the bathtub. Um, there are men all over the place, you know, putting their hands, doing the liver temperature tests, putting their hands in the water. The water's still warm. Where this is has to be the most humiliating final scene for any woman or any person in general uh, because it takes hours to analyze this crime scene. So he's under arrest. The prosecutor says this was murder and they call Oscar Heinrich, who's my forensic scientist. He comes down, he does some of his bloodstain pattern analysis measurements, a lot of trigonometry. He looks at the crime scene and he says, I'm not doing this. I don't think he did it. I think it was a slip and fall. And I can prove it. And he calls the defense attorney and says, you should hire me. And he does. This Mm -hmm. is a really big case for Heinrich. Um, This is a big challenge for him because, again, David Lampson has this sort of flat affect. I I interviewed on Wicked Words a journalist who covered the story of Michael Morton, who was accused in Texas of killing his wife while his son slept nearby. 
And the jury convicted him basically because he had no emotion. And this is not something that you can use under any circumstances to convict right. someone. People react differently. And now we know, of course, there are disorders that cause people sometimes to react, you know, with a flat affect. And and David Lamson showed very little emotion. There was not that outrage. And I don't believe the, the um, you know, I don't subscribe to the belief that people who are innocent, number one, don't call an attorney. They absolutely should call an attorney. And number two, right. I don't believe that every innocent person is going to pound their chest and say, this is not... That, you know, this is wrong. This is what people react different. I mean, what do you think about that? Do you agree with that or am I totally I think you can't base innocence or guilt off anybody's reactions or emotions. And then be, it, it, I've had many defense attorneys tell me that, you know, you a defendant can't win in court. You know, they oftentimes, as far as, you know, based on their, you know, how the jury is going to perceive their reactions. So the the lawyers will usually instruct them, you know, look forward, don't look at the jury. Try to keep a flat affect. Don't you know? Just don't give me. But if if there's no emotion, then they're oh, they must be a killer. They're emotional. Right. If they're upset and crying. Oh well, they're fake crocodile tears. There's you really can't win, and it just shouldn't be a factor. Every, everything should be evidence, and none of that should be a factor. But unfortunately, they're human beings in a jury box, and it oftentimes plays in. But the, you know, what's the right answer? What's the what's the what's the right way to act when you're on trial for your life? Right. And that, and that's why you really have to look at the evidence and there has to be solid evidence. And that's part of the, the story of this book is the incredible need for people to gather correct evidence and to look at every aspect of this case, which is not what happened. So David Lamson goes on trial and here's the controversy that I think is really interesting. I wanted to know what were the chances that she could have fallen, right? Mm-hmm. There was accusations that he had an affair, which was never proven. Um, there were accusations that she asked for a divorce, which was never proven. Um, that there was, I have no idea where the prosecutor came up with this, but his working theory was that David Lamson, the night before, when they came home and she had an upset stomach, wanted to have sex. And she said, no, I would have thought an upset stomach was enough of an excuse, but the prosecutor said that she said, no, I am menstruating. So he let it go. When she took a bath, this is, again, the working theory. When she took a bath, he saw a, um, you know, a, uh, he looked in her cabinet and saw evidence that she was not, she had a pad, a clean pad. There was nothing in the trash can. He essentially didn't believe that she was on her period. He believed she made it up. He had a pipe and he beat her to death. So physical evidence, and I'll get your input on this, the physical evidence in this case. She had evenly spaced marks on the back of her head. So mm -hmm. three cracks to the back of her head that killed her. And mm -hmm. they are parallel and they're evenly spaced. So the prosecutor said that he, there were experts that said this is what it would have taken to kill her and produce this amount of blood. But they're right. evenly spaced. So when I talk to a neurologist um, who is an expert in, in um, crash, uh, you know, football players with their heads and people who are in, in car accidents, he said, you know, if you're hitting somebody with a pipe, they're not going to stand there so that it's evenly spaced. They're going to be flailing around all over the place. That doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense. So what did make sense to Oscar Heinrich was a couple of things. And then I want you to talk about the evidence. 
a couple of things. One was that, in, and I looked at the crime scene photos and I agree with this, if you look at the ridges on the sink, which was very close to the bathtub, they mm-hmm. are evenly spaced and they would fit what happened on her head. So the slip and fall theory then becomes a lot more valid. The issue, the one other point that Heinrich made that he believed very strongly is that there was a lack of um, blood void. So if I'm going to beat you to death and we are in a small bathroom and there's a jacket behind me, if I am beating you and it is blood on every wall, there will be a void where my body is. I catch the blood, not the jacket behind me. The yeah, jacket behind mm-hmm. the jacket mm-hmm. behind him was covered with blood. So there was no void anywhere. So now the slip and fall seems reasonable. What about to you? Does that seem reasonable to you? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen the crime scene photos, but the, as you were describing that, the first thing I thought of was obviously she didn't fall three times. So there has to be some object in the room that could account for those wounds. We've had it in cases that I've worked where it's a weird injury and then you look and find, well, there's, you know, in one particular one, we had a person who was dead in a closet. And as we're reconstructing that, as was murder, but we were reconstructing the crime scene. We look, well, we're looking down low where he's sitting, but if you look up higher, there's a bracket on a shelf that fits perfectly with the wound. So if, if there's a sink that has three ridges on it, that certainly seems re- more reasonable than the beating, but the, to me, the shadow, the lack of a shadow pattern is more, I mean, I haven't seen this bathroom. I assume it's not huge. No, it's tiny. But if there's blood spattered on all four walls, you know, if there was someone else in the room with her, where was that person standing? Because there should be, you know, a void pattern or a shadow pattern, a spot where the, they caught the blood and it didn't go onto the wall. So it, it definitely seems reasonable to me. W- was that evidence presented? Because one of the most interesting parts of this trial is that he go he has what, four trials. He does. All together, yeah. Before, um, before the it's it, it dropped. So in, in the first one, it's a short trial. Uh, he, it's uh, what was it? Just a just a, like a week, three couple of weeks, three mm-hmm. weeks, and then he's convicted. And again, go back to the thirties. He was sentenced to be hung. He was. They were, they were gonna they were gonna hang him. Um, but then, so now was the did Heimrich did. Did he testify in that trial? To the he jury? did. He fought, He testified in all of them. And, and what happened was that David Lamson was convicted and he was sent to death row. Um, and there was an appeal. So mm-hmm. the appeal uh, was based on this. And th- here's more controversy. So Heinrich wanted to <laughs> reenact the accident, the slip and fall in the courtroom. He and mm-hmm. he was actually able to later on. But. Everyone agreed that he said, listen, I can make this happen without killing my assistant. (laughs) Uh How do you reenact something like this without killing the person? Right. And so there was this really weird legal leap uh, loophole where he wasn't able to do a demonstration that 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 Supreme Court justices, the state Supreme Court justices said he should have been able to do. But then the justices said, but I don't. (laughs) how do you do it? And they tried. And the jury uh-huh. tried. Everybody tried to replicate this. But let's go mm-hmm. back to the crime real quick. So now we're going to talk about criminal behavior and the perpetrator's behavior. How important is it? So here's what we have with David Lamson. He is outside with no shirt on, getting scratched mm-hmm. up by bushes and burning things. 
And he is surrounded by neighbors talking to him over the fence. And he is talking mm-hmm. about simonizing cars and joking with that one of his neighbors joked and said, well, you're getting a t- you're doing two things at once. You're getting a tan and you're, you know, doing you're being productive with your chores. And he laughed. Mm-hmm. He has a real estate agent who comes up unexpectedly. Is this conceivably someone who then went in either before or after the real estate agent comes and has beaten his wife to death and then comes out and has casual conversations? I mean, to me, of course, because I've written a lot about people with psychopathy, this, this would be somebody who is a sociopath or a psychopath. But does that seem reasonable to you? It, did you say that the the bath water was still warm when the when the forensics experts came in? Yeah. So it would seem like depending on how long he had been outside. Now had had the murder occurred prior to the real estate agent coming over? They then, weren't sure you know, because this all happened quickly, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. We don't know how long he was he was outside. You know, I would say I don't know. I don't have a baseline for the guy. Is he a sociopath? Is he a, is he a psychopath? Could he pull something like that off? But if it's the real estate agent says, hey, can I come in? And he goes upstairs and then murders his wife. And like, there's, yeah, behaviorally, it just seems, it's it, it, that would be ridiculous to me, you know, to choose that moment in time because of, especially because of the prosecution's narrative that, you know, th- that she didn't have sex with him the night before. Right. He decides, you know, right now, while there's somebody knocking on the door, it's perfect time for me to kill you. Like, give me a break. And then, as you said, where does that, that's what, you know, for as someone who works on wrongful convictions, I get so, I, I get I get really irritated when I hear prosecutors doing shit like that, where they just you know just make stuff up out of whole cloth and, and spit it to the jury. Where there's no, even if that was true, there's no possible way they could know that. Yeah, there's no way. So physical evidence that I talked to neurologists, I talked to four different neurologists about this case. Um, they were split <laughs> on mm-hmm. whether or not this woman a slip and fall would have resulted in half of her blood spilling out over all different walls and ceilings. I had mm-hmm. two who said, if you hit the right blood vessel or artery in your head, absolutely. And I had two others who said, I just don't see how that's possible. So now I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I don't know what to do at this point. <laughs> well, well, my issue with that would be the injuries are what the injuries are. Right. Right. So whether whether the injuries were inflicted by the sink or by an iron pipe, I don't see how either one of those would change the amount of blood loss because we know what the injuries were. We know what arteries were damaged. I don't see how the 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 method of sustaining the injuries would make a difference in how much she would bleed. Well, let me explain. The idea with the iron pipe is that she was cracked over the head three times. The idea mm-hmm. with the slip and fall is that it was her falling. She was fairly, you know, she was five foot seven. Her falling, slipping down five feet and hitting her head could the impact could one impact have caused that much blood we know that a pipe three times would have caused that much blood but then you're back to the parallel lines how could you have these perfectly right you know done so are we talking about the um because i'm drawing a blank on the term right now but like the backsplash from like the so they're saying like the could the blood have come from the pipe Whipping well, back and I th- forth. I think the I think the idea was that could three cracks on three cracks on the back of the head. I think every all the neurologists agreed if you are hit somebody three times, it could result in that loss of blood mm-hmm. all over the place. And I, and I mean just the volume of blood is what we're talking about, not where it was mm-hmm. placed or anything. Right. Versus one hit on the side of a sink and then falling, how would that have resulted? 
one hit, even though it's three parallel lines, it was just one impact of her falling. How could that have resulted in all this? And then to complicate things, David Lampson, when he screamed, he went in and grabbed his wife and put her on his lap. So we don't know what her position was when he found her. And he says he was too traumatized to know. The prosecutor made a big deal. Yeah, the prosecutor made a big deal. I hope I don't offend anybody here, but the prosecutor made a big deal that he was an actor, a professional actor. He was a community theater actor. So this Mm -hmm. is not (laughs) Lawrence Olivier here. I mean, you know, but but the jury really bought into that, that he was an expert actor. And then plus the the flat affect. And he was a terrible witness. And I remember um, my father... My father's uh, co-worker at the Innocence Project was a guy named uh, Bill Allison, and he represented Michael Morton, who, as I said, spent 25 years in prison for, for killing his wife. And he didn't do it. Somebody else did it. And it was proven. And Bill Allison said Michael Morton was the worst witness that he could have put on the stand because he didn't know anything. He right. wasn't there. It's often the case. Yeah. Yeah. David Lampson was like, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember where her, her body was positioned. So he did himself no good. So, you know, as you mentioned before, if we're wrapping up this case, David Lamson is convicted and then he appeals and he had some real heavy hitters behind him, some really kind of who's who of, of California who put together a whole case that was a, a, really helped his appeal. It went all the way to the California Supreme Court and even they were split. They could not agree on whether or not he should get a new trial. And finally, there was a majority on the court, and they said he should get a new trial. And it was hung jury after hung jury, and finally the prosecutor just gave up. So, you know, as an author, I begin the book and I end the book with this. It's just a technique I like to use where I start with this really pivotal death row case from 1933. This is where Oscar Heinrich is. This is whose life is in his hands. This was a terrible death. Now, before I tell you what happened, let me tell you how we got here to begin with. And then I go back to 1920, Fatty Arbuckle and all of these really big cases that he had. So as an author, I dream of having a dun-dun-dun-dun at the end. You know, he is the white knight. He comes in and he solves the case and and this makes history and, you know, um, this is what he's known for. And that's not what happened. The prosecutor just finally gave up and said, this guy is never going to get a conviction. David Lamson wrote a really good book, actually, um, when he was in prison and when he was on death row on San Quentin. And um, he said he wrote this book. It was a nonfiction book. It was a memoir. And it was about from the prisoner's point of view, just how how terrible the prisoner, the prison was. It became a bestseller. He wrote a fiction book. It became a bestseller. And he went on to write screenplays and he got married and B.B. grew up and she just said he was a wonderful husband and never said anything but nice things about Aileen and he was a great father. So this is, again, you know, people who kill don't always reoffend, obviously, but this is someone who really did live an exemplary life after he got mm-hmm. out of prison. So does that say anything? Does, does the way that it, I mean, obviously, if he had killed again, there would have been a lot of suspicion. But mm-hmm. um, but he didn't. And he lived a very productive, really, really admirable life. So does that say anything to us? Or are you still are we still suspicious of David Lampson? 
I think for people to get that full story, they need to check out uh, the book, American Sherlock Murder Forensics and the Birth of American CSI. And you need to check out the podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, where there are now three seasons, six episodes each, that you can find wherever you get your podcast. Her name is Kate Winkler Dawson. The podcast is called Tenfold More Wicked. Check it out. It very well could be your next true crime binge. Thanks so much, Kate, for joining me. This has been really interesting, especially to talk about the case. I'm really, I'm really, I think I'm going to check out your book. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.